Okay, great. So um, we're doing an interview with Layla Masri, uh, president and co-founder of Bean Creative. Um, Layla, I noticed that you had some experience in marketing and journalism. Um, That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if that affected um, the way you develop interactives at all or other web components. Absolutely. Um, you know, and actually, to be perfectly frank, it's one of our biggest sales points of just working with our company in, in general. Um, having a background in marketing and advertising um, has really allowed me to be able to think very strategically on the types of um, interactives and experiences that we put together. So whether we're creating um, an educational game about pandas, which is actually what I was on a conference call uh, yesterday about for National Geographic, or we are helping um, you know, a, a huge membership association um, redesign their whole website, the basis for all those conversations are initially all stem around their goals and their users. So and that's really where the marketing piece comes into play. So thinking about who your audience is, um, what experiences they bring to the table, what you want to make an impact with um, when they interact with you, and what the goals of the organization are for that endeavor um, are really big pieces that we consider as kind of our uh, foundation for any project that we create from our studio. That's really interesting. So it's not just like on the surface appealing to potential clients, but it goes deeper in actually developing the the interactives that you do and the other web components that you make. Yeah, I mean it's it's the bedrock of everything that we do because um, it's just so important to be user centric and organization centric um, for the people that are of course paying the bills. Um, you know they have goals that they want to see uh, achieved, and um, conversely audiences that come and experience these um, websites or apps or mobile offerings also have things that they want to get out of it. So really being able to understand um, what those needs are and how best to use interactivity to accomplish those are, are really, really key pieces of um, what we do and, and, and what we hire for as well. Cool. Um, so I noticed that Bean Creative has developed a lot of interactive games. Um, could you tell me more about like the common tools you use in developing these, either in software or just um, maybe in, you know, technical skill and approach? Sure. Um, yeah. So I mean, a lot of times it will be dependent on the client that we're working with. So for example, we might have some folks that um, say, well, our whole website is in Flash, and we are at this point, not looking to change Flash into anything else, um, such as HTML5 or other offerings. So in that case, sometimes the um, software decisions and, and the programming languages are kind of set for us. Um, but it's interesting, you know, just kind of as a sidebar about Flash. We were doing tons and tons and tons of Flash work um, for the past decade. And um, ever since the kind of explosion of the app marketplace and now the um, even bigger explosion perhaps of um, mobile and HTML5 and responsive uh, site design, we have really done very little in, in Flash. So now um, when we're developing, we're typically uh, developing using responsive design, so a variety of different tools, both 
um, coding in, in HTML5, um, a lot of JavaScript, a lot of um, server-side pieces like um, uh, CSS, other types of, of methods. And we use a lot of APIs when we're doing these things um, so that we're pulling in a lot of information. So usually it's, it's rare that it's a single solution where um, our folks sit down and kind of write something from start to finish as, as a code base. Oftentimes it's um, a medley of a lot of different things depending on, on the project. And certainly when we get into the app space, then we've got different programming languages that come into play and different tools. So depending on whether we're building something native um, for iOS, which would be um, in uh, Xcode, or, or if we're building something native for Android, which uh, oftentimes would be in Java, C++. Um, and then certainly we have a lot of now, thankfully, uh, tools that allow us to do cross-app development. So for example, PhoneGap is something we use quite a bit now so that we can develop an app that can run on um, a variety of different operating systems and devices. So you can kind of put something out there for Android, iOS, um, and now we're starting to get a lot into um, Windows development as well, some projects we're doing for PDF. So if I could give one word of advice, it would be to be extremely flexible and open to learning new technologies because they seem to burst onto the scene every single day. There's probably 12 I forgot to mention right now. I'm curious just about the Flash. Um, are you trying to steer clients away from that? Um, it's not that we're steering clients away. It's that um, there's been a tremendous amount of um, negative press about uh, and hype about why Flash is um, something that should, at this point, not really be considered to be a dominant language. And um, you know, that really kind of stemmed from uh, a lot of the comments made by Steve Jobs when he was alive. And, and of course, being the guru that he is, the media really picked up on that um, and took off with it. But certainly his points had a lot of validity to them. Um, Flash is a um, very in, uh, intensive language in terms of, of bandwidth and resources that it uses. So to a certain extent, you know, I think his comments really helped kind of spur um, a latent um, kind of underground movement to try to make things a lot um, lighter and, and more flexible to use on mobile devices. And certainly the explosion of mobile devices has really necessitated um, being very efficient in, in your code base. And um, Flash does run on everything other than um, the iOS devices, but at this point, if you want something to work across everything, Flash just really isn't um, a good tool to use anymore because if you pull it up on uh, your your iPhone, Flash device or Flash Interactive just simply won't work. Um, so that's kind of been a real big deal to move things away. That's interesting. That's kind of a social movement, I guess. <laughs> um, okay, so how do you go about designing for multiple users? Well, it's really been um, an interesting process getting um, to that point because originally um, when we first started, um, and you are, actually I should back up and say multiple users, do you mean across like desktop, mobile, you know, those types of users or multiple users in terms of different types of audience members? 
Uh, well, that's actually linked to another question I had, because um, I was going to ask if um, you generally think of your user demographics in terms of like the traditional age or income range or education level, or if it was more like what kind of technology they have or generally use. Uh, well, that's actually a great question. Um, typically, when we're talking about users, um, it's a very unique uh, experience for each client. So I mentioned, for example, National Geographic and a project we're working on with them. Um, and this is, in this case, it's something where the primary audience are middle schoolers who would be using this interactive in, in most likely in the classroom, but potentially at home. Um, so in that case, we not only have to factor in the demographics of what do we know about middle schoolers, you know, how tech savvy are they, what might they have in their schools or what might they not, um, that's also a big factor. Um, you know, you have to consider the, the technology has and has not. Um, but then we also have to consider the, the secondary um, users. So how are these, um, these middle schoolers getting to this interactive? Well, most likely it's through an educator um, or potentially through a parent. So in that case, we would probably we would have three different audience types with the students being primary and the teachers probably being secondary, parents maybe being tertiary. And then within those, um, we do internally at Being Creative um, an audience analysis where we create a matrix of these users. So we break it down into those, for example, three demographics that I just mentioned for this particular project. And then inside of that, we would list some of the demographics. Um, we would list some of the kind of technology expectations of you know what you would expect the middle schooler to, to be using. Of course, you know these days we're pretty lucky that you don't have to teach a middle schooler, for example, um, how to touch things on the screen and manipulate them. That is pretty much hardwired for the, the digital natives. Um, so that's that's a nice thing. But when you talk about the teachers, for example, there are some teachers that are going to be more tech savvy than others. Same with parents. So and understanding the tech part of it is, is important. And then when we kind of break it down further, we talk about what's the expected knowledge base that we uh, anticipate people will be coming to this experience with. Um, and then what are the challenges that they're facing that we can help? What are the problems they're having that we can assist with? What do we want them to take away at the end? What are the key things that we need to make sure are really highlighted for them? So. It gets deeper than, than the demographics for sure, but the demographics are a really good starting point. Okay, great. Wow, that was a lot of really good information. Thank you. Um, so what methods do you use to uncover usability problems on museum websites? I'm sorry, you kind of cut out there. What was the question? Oh, um, what methods do you use to uncover usability problems on museum websites? Oh, sure. Um, well, museum websites are, um, you know, a, a somewhat of a different breed to to some degree, simply because there are often the kind of entire universe of people that could be um, visiting a website that belongs to a museum. So you've got obviously your general public folks. You've got um, down to students, curators, educators, researchers. There's just such a big magnitude of the types of people that could be coming that um, it does make the kind of organization um, of a website, for example, for a museum, much more complex. Um, in that case, what we're usually trying to do 
is um, focus on creating a uh, navigation and organization schema that will allow each of those audiences to see um, themselves and their own needs inside of it so that it's not just, um, hey, this is the exhibitions that we have going on currently and here's how to visit, which of course are very important um, to museum mission. But um, you know, also making it very clear right from the home page and any other page that you might stumble into the website first um, so that you can see what offerings are there. So many times um, we find that it's helpful to have navigation, for example, that really does call things out by the type of user you are. Um, so that's kind of a different philosophy than maybe a, a kind of more general website that might just have, you know, who we are, what we do, how we do it. Um, that the needs of, of some of the people visiting museum websites can often be very diverse. So um, you have to really make sure that you identify the key users and provide as much content to those folks as you can, but also make it very clear through um, the organization, the navigation, what you're offering up to them, and the taxonomies that you use to tag your content and bubble it up to the surface. Um, those are all methods that we use to make sure that um, some of the smaller, smaller audiences of a particular museum website still can find what they need without feeling like they really have to pull out a shovel and start digging. So related to that, um, also on museum websites, what do you think are the most common usability challenges? Well, um, usability is is so complex um, because it can mean so many different things, right? It can be um, the font size and some of the um, various types of, of visual aspects of, of how um, different age, age people um, use a site. For example, I just had to start getting glasses for uh, using my computer. So, you know, <laughs> there's those types of needs. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so there's those kinds of needs. And then there's, there's just kind of the how do I find um, what I'm looking for efficiently. And I think the nice thing um, that we're really fortunate is that technology is really catching up to some of these, these needs. So, for example, um, we have the ability to um, have really impressive um, navigation features. So as an example, we did um, a redesign for the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, They're the world's largest children's museum, and they just have just tremendous amount of traffic and visitation. Mm -hmm. And when we got started on the redesign, and something I really recommend that everyone do, they looked at their stats pretty specifically. and, and they noted the areas where they had some concerns, for example, areas that they wanted to have higher visitorship of their content on their website, and other areas where they were surprised that um, you know, people weren't going to this information. And sometimes it was a fact of, uh, that the information maybe wasn't relevant anymore, but oftentimes it was just harder to get to. Mm -hmm. So we devised a lot of different things to help them. Um, a perfect example is, is um, kind of the menu structure that a lot of websites now these days are, are using, at least on the desktop, um, are what's kind of called a mega menu, where you're able to use um, inside of the menu, instead of just saying, you know, here's a link for our exhibitions, here's a link for our staff, here's a link for you name it, you actually can pull out more information. So when you click on, or you roll over, excuse me, the um, 
menu item for visit for the Children's Museum, not only do you get the offerings and options to, to dive in deeper, but it pulls out a panel in that um, navigation that tells you the hours for today. It actually says, you know, today is um, you know, Wednesday, November 27th. Here's what's going on today. Here are hours. And it also includes a search box to put in your zip code and get directions to the museum. So that kind of usability is really thinking about the key things that you know your audience are going to be doing on your website. In this case, the most obvious being plan a, a visit and make it as easy as possible. This is a great way to do it. They've never even left the home page. Um, but we haven't cluttered up the home page with uh, a huge amount of information that we could get in other places. So it's really nice to be able to use technology, as I said, to kind of bubble up uh, key information in ways that can decrease the amount of, of searching, clicking, digging. Um, and, and I will add as kind of a um, peripheral to that, that while I mentioned the home page, it's so important to remember that nowadays it's almost rare that people come as their first stop in your website to your home page. So when you're designing and developing and thinking about your page structure, your navigation um, schematic, how you organize your content, what content you feature, you really have to almost treat each page as if that was the first page that somebody um, came to on your site. So that might be um, you know, your museum mission. It might be um, somewhere further down inside of your site in, in almost a tertiary level. But assuming that somebody gets there, they want to have, be grounded and have a way that they uh, feel is clear to find the information that's most relevant for them. Wow, those sound like really good tools, especially the mega menus. I haven't really run into those yet, but they sound like it's the way of the future for a lot of museums. <laughs> they're they're <laughs> I think very helpful. I mean, I will say that yeah. they, they work um, better on a desktop. Um, because you have more real estate. Um, as you get down to um, using responsive design, as you get down into the smart screen or the smartphone screen, um, you can definitely still embed that into the menus, but the menus oftentimes will kind of take up your entire screen as you open them and then fold up as, as you navigate. So there's ways to pull it in um, regardless of the screen size that you have. Yeah, it seems like especially with museums that they really want to put a lot of content on the home page and yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, oftentimes I, I work with clients, museums or not, where their home page has become what I call the kind of the kitchen junk drawer of, mm -hmm. I didn't know where to put it, so I just kept scrolling it down the, the home page, or I you know, made another bucket over here, and, and there it is. And, and that's obviously, you know, we can all laugh about it and know, gosh, that's kind of silly to do. But uh, there, are, there are many, many sites that unfortunately, um, just by nature of having multiple editors and, and being kind of out on the Internet for a while, they just kind of um, have to fight that um, and they have to be built in a way that allows people to um, put in new content that, that where they don't have to feel like, I don't know where this goes, so I'll just slap it on the home page. Great. Well, thank you. <laughs> You gave me some good things to think about in the redesign of our own museum website. <laughs> okay, so what one thing do you wish that your clients would understand better about the importance of usability? You know, it's really, um, it's not the sexy stuff like the design, for example, that really 
gets to gets people hung up. Um, all of the pieces I, I will say are important. You need to think about um, the aesthetic of your design, you know, your choices of fonts, colors, um, imagery, um, your layout, your navigation choices, your, your language that you use to describe those choices. All of those things are really important. But I would say probably the single most overlooked um, aspect of usability is your content. And it's one of the hardest things to, um, to change if you think about it. Take any museum website. It's probably not your first at this point. You've probably gone through numerous iterations of your, your website. And typically what happens when you redesign is that you take most, if not all, of your content and kind of fit it into a new look and feel, a new structure. So you kind of map what you have to the new website you're creating. And I think that um, in the most successful redesigns that we've done, we've built, and our client, more importantly, has built time in to really consider the, the content. Not just what's written, you know, does, does it still resonate? Is it written in a, in a nice web-friendly voice? Does it convey our brand? Obviously, those are very important pieces. Um, you know, obviously, giving away my, my marketer background again, having um, <laughs> readable, compelling content is, is very important. Um, but for example, thinking about how that content is going to be used, especially as, you, um, as you're using most likely some kind of content management system at this point. So thinking about how you can have um, your, um, your content very readable. So having um, chunkable content where you've got headers, blurbs, summaries, deeper content. A lot of times uh, our content is not really written that way. It's kind of just a more expository, you know, here it is and read it, enjoy it, what have you, intersperse it with pictures, but that's the content. Um, and really thinking about how your users are going to be interested in, in interacting with that content, how they might come across it, how they might read it. So for example, if you think about, um, let's say, just a kind of a magazine article or, or some kind of longer form piece of content that has a, a value, that is going to be inherently harder to read, let's say, on a smartphone than it would be on a desktop. So just considering the content that you have, how you display it, how it's written, all of those pieces, I think, um, are, they're just hard. They take time um, to, to reconsider, most likely, for most of us, it's reconsidering our content. Um, and it kind of takes a, a, a little bit of time to wrap your brain around the fact that you know people are using um, different types of, types of devices and coming to you with different needs. So um, having your content be somewhat flexible in the way that it's stored and, and written so that you can kind of pull out nuggets and use as highlights. Those things are hard to wrap your head around. We like to just kind of write something and go there to as That's probably the biggest uh, challenge and yet most important aspect these days for a successful redesign. So would you say that the content is generally the thing that you have the least amount of control over? Because is that normally something that's given to you, say, by like the educators or the curators of a museum? Yeah, typically that's um, you know the realm, of course, of, of the museum is is to um, be in charge of, of that content. So, for example, um, perfect example actually, when we did the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, using that as an, another example, um, we actually helped them with the copywriting um, for 
their kind of top landing pages. So when you arrived at their um, about the museum area or about their exhibit, those types of kind of big picture overviews, um, we actually helped them create marketing uh, copy that was you know snappy and, and read well and, and kind of was a lead-in to their other content for people to kind of dive into further, which was then their own content that, that they used. Um, and a lot of times, um, you know, it's funny because my, my background specifically is in copywriting, so I was helping them quite a bit in creating um, the right language. And I feel like the reason that that is oftentimes just kept in-house is because it's one of the few things, um, to be frank, that people feel that they can still have control over with their redesign. I mean, if you're hiring a, a company to kind of come in and help reshape what you're doing, and redesign and program, you're handing over a lot of, of responsibility to that company. And, and to a certain extent, um, you know, you feel like you want to own part of it. And certainly the content is, is something you do own and something that's easier to wrap your head around, well, I can edit that. I can do that. I can make sure that, that the content is, is squared away. Um, so I think that that's more of an education um, that needs to happen with people that are in charge of the content. Um, understanding how to write for the web, understanding how content management systems um, actually ingest and output your content so that you can be a, a smarter writer. Because it's rarely that, that the content we get is unreadable. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be pretty bad, right? But it's usually more of understanding how it can be used and, and bubble up to the surface and, and therefore how it needs to be written to accommodate that. Great. Um. Okay, so uh, to what extent um, would you say that mobile devices factor into how you design for maximum usability? Well, mobile is, is really um, an awesome um, way to kind of consider the possibilities these days. When we first started designing for mobile websites, um, HTML5 and, and a lot of the um, more modern uh, browser considerations just really weren't there. So typically, um, I'd say you know, five years ago, uh, we would be designing uh, a separate mobile website. So for example, the difference being that nowadays we would design a singular website that has considerations for how to, to scale to the different screen sizes. In the past, we would have, okay, here's your quote unquote regular website, you know, your desktop. Um, typical kind of home or office experience. And then for those of you that have a, a phone, then we'll create kind of a smaller version, usually at that time, with um, a, a more curated subset of your content. And um, that worked well for what was available at the time and, and how it could be built. But more and more these days, um, responsive design has, has really kind of changed the perspective on what a mobile website is. And the philosophy of the past where people said, well, whatever you're going to offer on mobile, you start with whatever you have on desktop and then kind of chop some things out and there you go, you've got your smaller screen experience. Um, nowadays, actually, it's completely 180 where people think about how they want things to render and be used on the, uh, the smartphone or tablet and then extrapolate upward and outward from there for people on desktop. And it's kind of twofold why that's happened. 
Um, one is that it's, it's kind of a fundamental shift in philosophy being an additive process as opposed to a subtractive one. And two, I mean, we've all seen the stats about um, mobile. It's taken over <laughs> from desktop. There are more people going online on mobile devices than on desktop. So you really do have to think about it in a different way simply because the numbers of, of people coming to you traffic-wise really demands it. So from a planning perspective, you're, you're really kind of thinking about um, it, where in the past we would say, what do we think people will do on their smartphone and then limit the website, the, the mobile website to that? We're now saying, we want to give you the full experience. We want you to have the whole website. You know, maybe you do want to read our bylaws on your phone. That's Knock yourself out. You know, that's up to you. We don't necessarily at this point want to start curating a, a subset of what the offerings are. So that's really the most, um, probably the largest change that has happened just in terms of, of getting your head around the initial planning. Um, certainly I could dive into, if you'd like, some of the changes that have happened in terms of um, you know, thinking about the design process and, and the layout piece of it simply from a responsive design perspective and, and kind of adapting to different screen sizes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, um, I think that would be interesting. You know, I'm kind of curious if, do you, do you generally think about usability in a different way for a mobile site versus a desktop site? The usability is, is definitely different. Um, simply, well, for a number of reasons, but certainly the screen size matters. Um, you just don't have as much real estate, so you have to um, be really cognizant of navigation and organization. Um, those are so much more important, in my opinion, on a mobile experience because, um, you know, for those of us who are doing things online on, on their smartphones and tablets every day, um, you'll notice that the best uh, experiences tend to have um, options that you can dive into, but that you can then also tuck out of the way. The perfect example is, is, is the, um, the iconography that I think most people are now pretty familiar with, but someone had to start it and get it off the ground. Um, the kind of three lines that mean, hey, this opens up and closes. Um, kind of that menu system that is becoming uh, ubiquitous now on uh, mobile devices. So the ability for people simply to understand some of the, um, the nuances of, of how these experiences work, I mean, that's the beauty of having um, more time and more people using these is that the, the iconography and, and the, the functionality starts to become more in, inherent in the same way that we all know typically that the best place to look for a search box on a website is going to be in the upper right corner because that's where your eye is going to really lay first from a design perspective. So responsive really has um, fundamentally changed how designers think about design because it certainly has been a very interesting, in my 16 years of running this business and being an interactive, um, we went from designing for a specific, very exact screen size, which at the beginning was small. <laughs> they then got much bigger. And now, of course, they are all over the place. There are 
um, something like when you take in all of the different Android devices, and Android is certainly the, the most prolific in terms of their devices as opposed to the iOS landscape of the iPads and the minis and, and the iPods and phones. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that's most interesting with Android, they have, I think as of about maybe six months ago, so this has changed, but they have something like 11,000 different iterations of, of possible screen sizes because of the sheer number of devices that run um, the Android OS. So you can't possibly design 11,000 and counting uh, different screen sizes. So responsive really uh, has been obviously quite helpful in creating those types of experiences, but it really does change how you think about the design. Instead of being very discreet, you have to be more more fluid and you have to think about um, kind of breakpoints. So at a smart screen, smartphone size, um, which can vary depending on the device, you have to think about generally speaking, this is what um, the design is going to look like, this is how the navigation will work, and then how it scales outward. So once you get to more of a tablet experience, then you're out of the one column format typically, and then you're moving into, okay, now what kind of layout, what are the, the key, uh, what's the key content I want to show on a tablet? You can show more, so then you have to think about what are the other pieces of content and, um, and material that we want to showcase. And then obviously the desktop offering um, the biggest experience possible in terms of screen real estate. It's really like choreographing a dance now um, and kind of getting all these different steps. And if I move to over here, then what happens? And, and how does it react and, and respond then? So it's it's very different. Um, it's really changed how we think about um, the content, help our clients think about it, how we create our wireframes are different. It's just very, very um, a, a big change for us, but it's an exciting one, and I think everyone is, is really glad to have this kind of flexibility now. Oh, I bet. So do you think it's also different um, because people can bring in their devices in the museums and actually see maybe the exhibits or the artifacts that they're also experiencing online? Yes, and you know, that was actually, um, we did a, a responsive exhibit for um, the Renwick Gallery that was exactly that. Um, and it was, it was a win-win for everyone. The gallery didn't have a huge budget um, to create um, a massive amount of in uh, like physical space uh, in museum uh, kiosks for interactivity. They had one massive um, touch screen. It was like a big wall-mounted uh, touch screen experience. And this was a, um, an exhibit called 40 Under 40. So it was 40 artists in the age of 40 doing amazing things in the space of craft. Mm -hmm. And in that case, um, it was not where you would start out with an exhibit and say, well, this is an exhibit about Kandinsky, and you learn about Kandinsky at the beginning of the exhibit, and you kind of have that basis, and you walk through and, and kind of get some of the guides on the, on, the, uh, on the wall or what have you. This is each artist is different. Each piece is different. And it was really hard for them to get their heads around how can we give people more insight and information, especially because they're craft pieces. So a lot of times, you want to see how they're made. You want to see other pieces by that artist. There was just so much material that they didn't have the space in the gallery to include. 
or the budget to create um, physical pieces for um, you know in exhibit interaction. So it's absolutely having a responsive website was key because we had on each different uh, artist a QR code that you could scan that went directly to that artist's page on this responsive website. So whether you did that on an iPad or you know an Android phone, you would get the proper size experience um, right on your device. And then if you were in the gallery and wanted to use that large touch screen, you could do that. But there wasn't an issue of, well, there's only one and everyone wants to use it. You could easily use your phone or uh, tablet and have the exact same experience. And I think that was really key, is that it was exactly the same. It wasn't that, well, this is an approximation of that. Um, we had a singular code base, a singular build. Uh, it was very effective and efficient, both from a development standpoint as well as, of course, a budget one, which, of course, I know museums in particular, um, that's, that's a real uh, great point as well, because um, you know everyone's trying to do more with, with less. And this is a really fantastic uh, technological uh, advancement that allows us to really uh, implement that for museums in particular. Well, that's great. That actually leads me um, into my next question. Um, what would you recommend for museums that are on a shoestring budget right now who are interested in improving their website and their usability? Well, certainly, um, you know, as I've probably been uh, bandying about for quite a while right now, responsive is uh, really important and making sure that people can reach you on whatever device they have, I would say, is, is at this day and age a number one priority. However, you know, that said, I understand, um, you know, I've never had anyone come to me with a blank check and say, do whatever you need to do. Um, so probably the hardest part is just, Figuring out what you can do now versus, okay, do I have to burn my website to the ground and start over? Because that's a, a very time-consuming and potentially costly initiative. Um, there are probably the, the biggest suggestion that I could give would be to think about um, what areas of your website you, if it's not already responsive, um, what areas would be the most beneficial for you to have as a responsive uh, offering. Typically for most museums, that's going to be information about visitation and you know, certainly information about exhibits or, or other artifacts and um, curated pieces that you have. So the nice thing is that you don't necessarily have to completely redo your site. You can, and, that, and I think it really makes a lot of sense to kind of break off some pieces and say, let's try to um, rework this area so that we can offer a uh, more fluid experience for our, our mobile visitors. And the best way to really tell what that might be would be to look at your stats. Where are people going? What are the most visited pages? And you know, start from there. And that's a great way to do almost anything is, is to design and, and build and iterate. So use that as kind of a first step and then um, Assuming that you've done a good job of that, then you can start to uh, extrapolate that, that out to other parts of your website. Okay, great. Thank you. That's really good information. Sure. I mean, I think the biggest thing is just like we can all get overwhelmed by projects. I mean, in the same way that if you buy a house, 
you, uh, when you move in, you do not have to paint every single room, right? You can move in and you can say, well, I'm going to tackle the bedroom first because I'm going to spend a lot of time in my bedroom or my living room, whatever, um, and, and be thoughtful about what you can, can kind of parcel off and what you can take on and what resources you have internally that will help you because certainly you don't want to kind of jump on something that might be more complex to get approval for or people to support you in. So thinking about not only from what you can build, but also what support you'll have internally is certainly an important piece as well. Oh, sure. I think it's easier to to get approval for something like baby steps. You know, like, oh, we can take this page and make it responsive rather than scrapping the whole thing and making something new. Right. I mean, you just have, like, eyes start to roll back in the head. And when you, when you start saying, well, we have to redo the whole thing, nobody likes to hear that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you work or what industry you're in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so next we had a student question. Um, she's looking at the Bison Kill interactive game for the Comanche National Museum and Cultural Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. she wanted to know what the specific steps were that Being Creative goes through to create such a wonderful and intellectual game. Sure. Um, and it's funny because that one actually was developed in, in Flash, and that was part of the process that we used to uh, create it was to sit down with our client and determine exactly what it was that they were trying to do and then match it with the right technology. In that case, there's no way that we could have done um, half of what they wanted to do from a functionality perspective had we not used um, Flash. So they came to us and they said, you know, it's really important that we have people understand what the the importance of um, the bison was to and and continues to be to um, the Comanche folk, mm-hmm. and in particular, they warned us up front that this had to be a very realistic experience. It couldn't be cartoony. It couldn't be um, seen as kind of a less than realistic experience. And so that really drove us to a have um, a, a, the the design and illustrated style that we did, we actually had um, 3D uh, renderings and artists that were um, creating the characters for us. And we actually looked to figure out what would be a good experience. And um, we went to our video games that we all love to play and we use as inspiration. And um, we said, well, look, you're trying to show how the hunt happened and how it was challenging, how you had to be riding your horse, and you had to be avoiding prairie dog holes, and you had to coordinate with your um, the members of your uh, hunting party to try to, to funnel the, the bison in a certain way. And all of that really led us actually, ironically, to the genre of first-person shooter games, um, <laughs> where you're kind of in a uh, behind-the-character, kind of over-the-shoulder viewpoint, um, and of course, you know, something like Grand Theft Auto is not really um, something that you would think would be an inspiration for um, an educational game, but mm-hmm. that kind of style where you are um, having a very realistic look at a landscape and, and you are, in this case, hunting down uh, prey, it really made sense. So we actually found um, some examples of kind of the illustrative style and the overall look and feel of the interface just from a video game perspective, just kind of a proof of concept. We said, look, this is what we recommend. Um, so that was 
an easy way to get them to have mm-hmm. buy-in without having to build the thing and go, gee, I hope you like it. So we, we started there. Um, they said, yeah, we, we really like it. And then we um, worked extremely closely with them, as you can imagine. Um, you know, I don't speak any Comanche, and, and neither did anyone on our team. So we worked very closely with the curators, and they worked very closely with their subject matter experts to create the script. Uh, they recorded the audio of um, the war cries, of the hunting cries, um, and a lot of the, the pieces that we used as the payoff or the educational components of it. And actually, we're working right now, getting started on doing another exhibit for them about uh, the Comanche code talkers of uh, World War II, that they used um, you know, special Comanche words to stand for things during the war. So there's a whole different subset that we'll be working with them on as well. But that's kind of an overview of, of how it works. It's absolutely a, a very close partnership. It's not something where they kind of dump a script in our lap and say, you know, lots of luck to you. Show us the pretty pictures when you're ready. Um, we went through quite a lot of initial groundwork just to prep the game and make sure that it had um, good replay value, that it wasn't too long because uh, or too short because we know how much time people generally have to spend in an exhibit. They're not going to usually invest um, a 10-minute block, for example, to play something. So we had to make sure that it fit the, the, the space that they were looking for it to encompass. And then also um, you know, really think about um, the, the, the educational goals, make sure that we hit those and, and make sure that we did that in a way that was uh, culturally sensitive for them. So it's been really very successful for them. They've had a lot of people from other uh, Native American museums, including um, I believe the Smithsonian in uh, D.C. near me, that have expressed interest in turning this into a traveling exhibit. So uh, it's been really, really successful. And actually it, it won a, a Muse Award. We're really proud of that too. So it was um, absolutely something that I think really hit all the marks that we wanted, um, and very proud of it. Yeah, I was actually um, I kind of got into that game too. I thought it was really um, it was just really interesting subject matter, and I guess um, I wanted to know a little bit more about the formative evaluation process um, before you got into the development of it. So, I guess did you did you work through the curators with the Comanches, and um, also did you work with maybe? Any like of the of the typical demographic groups like children or um, parents, and were there any like negative um, reactions to it? I'm just curious. Yeah, no, those are great questions. Um, so in terms of the the initial process, um, we didn't work directly with um, their Comanche uh, resources. That was easier for them to do, and and I think they have a um, a network of folks that they reach out to, and I think. It was easier to have them do it because they already had a relationship with them. Um, some of them were tribal elders and folks where, um, you know, they just had a nice rapport with them, and, and I think it was um, a relationship that was easier for them to tap into. So getting the, the subject matter expertise, we, we relied on them, but we also pushed them to make sure that we were getting what we needed. So we would ask them, is it possible um, to do this, or is this, something that they would say, or is this something they would do? I mean, I can't tell you how many different types of TPs we went through to make sure that we got <laughs> it just right, um, you know, because it was important and we didn't have the, the background. So, um, you know, our first draft was close, but 
no cigar in, in some aspects. You know, that um, everything that was, was looked at with a fine-tooth comb, the, the wood, the grain of the hide, the, the design, um, the way the door opened, that kind of stuff. I mean, it was really granular, not in a bad way, but it was important to have that. Um, once we got into, once we got their approval on the um, cultural piece of it and making sure that we were being true to um, everything we needed to address, then once we got to uh, an alpha and beta stage of the interactive, that's when we started pulling in our testers. So we have, because we do a lot of work at Being Creative with education and particularly uh, with kids in the kind of preschool through high school range, uh, we have a network that we've built up called Bean Kids, and it's what you would expect. It's a bunch of kids that are informal testers for us, um, but not just the kids, their parents. And then also we have relationships with a number of the schools in our area where we can take devices and go in and uh, test with these kids. And of course, it's great because the kids are learning something. The teachers are thrilled um, that they get some, some time to uh, do what they need to do, and, and we come in and actually educate them on a subject matter. And so we sit back and we tell the kids, you know, hey, we created this game and we'd like to watch you play it. And so it's very informal, obviously, because um, we're just observing. But we've been able to get some really good um, pieces of information from those types of tests. So learning about the uh, feedback prompts, were they successful, learning about the placement of various things, buttons, icons, you name it. When, when we would see that there were people that potentially were getting stuck, we would obviously note the types of, of issues and, and whether or not that was just one person or several people. We'd listen to when they were laughing, what kinds of information they were sharing. You know, are they having fun or were they making fun of something? Um, you know, just all of those pieces to make sure that the response that we were hoping for was, was going to be achieved. And, and those, I cannot tell you how uh, important that informal testing is for our process. Um, and it's, it works for um, things that we're doing that are educational or not. Actually, here's a perfect example. Um, we did an app for uh, PBS Kids for one of their biggest preschool shows called Super Y, and it teaches literacy. So you've got four characters, and each one of them has an expertise in, one, in an area like letter recognition or writing letters or letter sounds. So there was a character we were testing um, this game, the app, and one of the characters um, helps you write letters. And this was uh, the very early days of um, app, iPhone apps. There wasn't even an iPad at that point. And, um, we were, um, we were we were working with technology and really trying to bend it to our will. So we were one of the first people to have the ability to use inside of an app to kind of write on the screen and write letters and have it check whether you did it right. So did you do the the A sender first, then the D sender, then et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we, we went in this classroom and we had this character that was teaching you how to write letters. And she's a princess. And she has a wand. And when you would write, your finger would become her wand, and you would write these letters, and sparkles would come out, and it was great. Well, <laughs> one of the kids um, said, you know, I don't, I don't, this, there's some 
frustrated with the wand. So, so you know, is it hard for you to use or what, what's bothering you? She said, well, when I'm touching the screen, it makes me touch the end of her wand. And you can't touch the end of a magic wand. That's where the magic is. You have to touch the bottom of the wand where, you, where you're supposed to hold it. And we're like, you know what? You are right. That of is course. a horrible place. <laughs> horrible place to have a wand uh, be held. And, you know, that was where the magic came out. And so we completely changed it so that when you touch the screen, you touch the bottom of the wand, and the wand extended from your finger and still shot out the the sparkles, but it's like those kind of subtleties to make sure that it's really, um, you know, creating that kind of wow experience. The testing is so great for that. Oh, that's so interesting. Bean Kit sounds like a really fun program. Yeah. It's a hoot. You just have to bring a lot of Purell to wipe down your screens afterwards. <laughs> I bet. Okay, um, and so this one's kind of a fun one. Um, since Bean Creative has a very wide variety of clients, who are your favorite clients to create for? <laughs> to make sure who's going to hear this interview, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, you know, we do have a, a pretty diverse mix. I will say, um, you know, my my uh, my personal sweet spot is creating um, educational things, um, whether for kids or, or grown-ups, because I feel like that's really the best use of this medium. Um, games and, and things where you can learn from them um, is kind of a byproduct are, are really super fun. And I'll tell you, those are the projects that gets ev- get everyone in our office really jazzed up because um, not only is it just fun for us to build, I mean, thinking about how um, to create that um, bison hunt game, for example, um, we all were learning Comanche. I mean, it was really interesting for us uh, <laughs> on a personal level. And then very cool to know that it made an impact. I mean, that Super Y app that I mentioned to you, um, you know, it went gangbusters and continues to do gangbusters in, in iTunes, and which is great. But the stories we were getting from people, especially some of them were rather unexpected. Um, there were a lot of parents that um, had children with, with learning disabilities or were autistic. And they said, I've been using this with my kid, and we went from knowing... Uh, two words to having a vocabulary of 20 words within three weeks of using this app. And you're like, stunned. I mean, it's so humbling and it's so rewarding and it just gets you so excited about getting up in the morning and and doing what you do. Those, I think, are are really the the fun ones for me. Great. Well, thank you so much, Layla. Um, Do you have any questions for me? Um, well, anything you know, maybe I should have asked that I Sorry, what was that? Oh, or anything I should have asked that I didn't. No, I think that the questions that, that you asked were great. And, you know, I would just say that if there are folks that are interested in um, some more of our kind of deeper philosophy and, and kind of the maybe more programmatic aspects of what we do, mm-hmm. um, we have some great stuff on, on the Being Creative blog. Um, so it's at beingcreative.com, um, and you can navigate to our blog from there. But we have, um, in particular, some really nice posts in our, there's a uh, tagged area for HTML5 um, and for mobile. And since we've been talking about those a lot, um, kind of the, the um, some tools, for example, and, and, and tips and tricks about how to design for this. So if, if that's helpful for folks, I'm always happy to 
share that kind of insight. I love listening to other people talk about what they do because it helps me learn. So I'm happy to share the wealth. Great. Well, thank you so much, and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> 